Chapter 18 Raffaella had to work at her mother's shop for a few hours, so I hit the grocery store before heading to the house. Once there, I chopped up some fresh veggies for a stir-fry and put them in the fridge. I put a block of tofu in some marinade and settled down in the family room to wait for Dad to get home from the store. There were times when I thought I would have made a good candidate for one of those corny stories about split personalities. Except in my case, I didn't have more than one person living in my head. I had only me, but I seemed to have two halves. Raffaella was right. I was a digital junkie, a techno-mode person. I liked electronics with lots of lights and buttons on them, TV with loads of features, computer software, some of it, the whole modern thing. I didn't believe in statues that cry, Saturday morning evangelists who heal cancer patients by touching them and shouting towards the ceiling, angels who brought messages from the beyond. Superstitions made me laugh. On the other hand, I could never, all my life, shake the notion that there was more. There were things in life that couldn't be explained or measured. When I worked with wood, there was more to it than the mechanics of cutting and sanding and painting, something creative that I couldn't explain to someone even if I wanted to. And the way I felt about Raffaella, or the love between my parents, how to measure that, or figure it out. Love wasn't material. You couldn't go down to the farmer's market behind the library on Saturday morning and buy a pound of it. Love was spiritual. There seemed to be no answer to this whole ghost business. It sounded crazy, but it wasn't crazy. All I could do was go by my experience, and I knew with the certainty of a headache or a burned finger or the voices I had heard in the forest that the voices I heard in the forest at night were real. Raphaela turned up at my house in time for dinner. You might find my father a little eccentric, I warned her. Dad got home at the usual time with the newspaper rolled up under his arm, humming away to himself as he came in the door. I introduced him to Raphaela, and they shook hands formally. When he caught my eye, he waggled his eyebrows dramatically, as if to say, not bad. I stir-fried the vegetables while he sat at the table and read Mom's latest report aloud to us. I hope your mother isn't getting in too deep, he said, frowning. Then he smiled. I think they have a few pounds of garlic left at the market if you want me to pick some up for you. Raphael laughed. That was his way of saying I had put too much into the stir-fry. But it was too late. I sprinkled some sugar on the veggies, added soy sauce, gave the mixture one last toss, and served it on a plate. I served the fried tofu in a shallow bowl. Dad tested the veggie dish, pronounced it groovy, and picked up a chicken wing. Maybe you should be a chef instead of a furniture maker, he commented. What do you think, Raffaella? Agreed. I can't boil water without burning it, he said. I looked at Raffaella. See what I mean? She laughed. At least somebody around here likes my jokes, Dad said. Dad, do you know anything about that little church out by the trailer park? The African Methodist? A little. How did it come to be called African? Because the people who built it in, let's see, 1849. His eyebrows shot up and he stopped, shot up and he stopped chewing, then said, hmm, how did you come to be interested in the place? I noticed it when I went out to Silverwood the first time. There's a plaque that tells the date. People who built it were descendants of Africans, I suppose. You didn't know about the black settlement in Oro Township? Never heard of it. What are they teaching in school nowadays? Never mind. I know the answer to that one. 
Lots of computers, no history. You can say that again, Raphaela put in. There was a substantial settlement there in the 19th century, Dad went on. Some say they were runaways from slavery who came through the Underground Railroad, but I've never seen any blacks around Oro. Oh, they all left the area long ago. Most returned to the U.S. You should read Elizabeth Maitland's diary. She and her husband were the first to take up land near where the church came to be built. Maybe she mentions it. Where can I get it? The library? Don't you remember? It's part of my estate sale purchase. In fact, you were holding it in your hands not long ago. It's badly damaged, but a lot is still legible. It's a genuine historical record. I remembered the box of books I had tucked away when the old delivery or when the delivery was made, and the musty old volume Dad had showed me that day. We sat in silence, and Dad made a pot of his killer coffee. I brewed tea for Raffaella. While we sipped, a thought came into my mind. Dad, you said all the blacks left the area. Why, too cold up here in the Great White North? I doubt it. Most came by way of Ohio and returned there. They have winter there, too. No, it's a mystery. Nobody really knows why they left. After dinner the next day, I met Raphael at the library. I found her on the second floor, sitting at a large oak table, a small stack of books before her making notes from a volume that looked like it hadn't seen the light of, of day for a century or so. I stood and watched her. Her raven hair hung straight, hiding her face. Why is she so closed in? I wondered for the thousandth time. I knew she liked being with me. Things like that you couldn't fake. And why would she? Nobody was forcing her to hang out with me. I knew she liked the physical side of things, too. Not that there was much kissing, hugging, holding hands. She wouldn't go any further, not even when I felt her heart beating against my chest and her breath quick in my ear. She would stop and push me away. She looked up and saw me. By the pricking of my thumbs, she said, Um, okay. Something handsome this way comes. I get the feeling you're misquoting something. Again. Shakespeare, the Scottish play, one of the witches. Ah, I said knowingly. I didn't have a clue. Find anything useful? Lots, but it's all background. Let's go to your store where we can talk. I'll fill you in. At the store, we made ourselves comfortable in the office. Raffaella opened up her notes and began. Okay, we go back a long way here. Two dates to keep in mind for the time being. After 1793, no one could be enslaved in Upper Canada, or any British colony for that matter. People who were already slaves remained so. After 1833, slavery was abolished altogether in Upper and Lower Canada. Which really bugged the Americans, I bet. Keep your eye on the ball here, Garnet. We have a lot of ground to cover. Yes, ma'am. Speaking of the Americans, relations between them and Britain hadn't improved after the Revolution in 17-whatever. You know where Penetanguishene is? I put on a stupid face. Duh, a town up there on Georgian Bay? The British were always afraid that the Americans would control the Great Lakes with their navy, and poor little Penetanguishene sat up there on the water, almost totally isolated. So the Brits got the idea to build a land route there from Barrie. That way, the port could be supplied and defended more easily. Remember, back then, this whole area was nothing but wilderness crisscrossed by the Indian trails. In 1811, a guy named Samuel Wilmot surveyed the road. 
Old Sammy, what a guy. Raphaela sat straight and rolled her eyes. No wonder you were in trouble at school all the time. Be quiet and pay attention. Did I ever tell you that you're beautiful when you take control? While Wilmot was at it, he surveyed parcels of land on each side of the road for settlers. Why, you might ask? I might, but I won't. Because settlers could grow food for the soldiers at the fort, and, if necessary, they could defend the road. All this is really fascinating, Raffaella, but I really don't see, during the War of 1812-14, to 14, the Americans did gain control of the lakes, for part of the war anyway. So the government of Upper Canada knew it had made a wise decision. They decided to survey the whole area and bring in more settlers. The government of Upper Canada, Sir Peregrine Maitland. Who would name their kid after a falcon? May I continue? Sorry, proceed. Maitland decided to grant some of the land to blacks. Hey, just like Dad said. And Maitland, that's the name of the pioneer who took up land near the church. Couldn't have been this Maitland. He lived at York. That's Toronto. Your Maitland must have been a relative. Anyway, here's the rest. Maitland was an abolitionist and therefore sympathetic to blacks. Almost all of them ex- almost all of them ex-slaves from the U.S. between 1819 and 1826. 21 land grants were made to blacks. 19 located their grants, meaning they filed for them, but only eight families actually settled. You had to clear a certain amount of land and build a dwelling before you got ownership. Between 1828 and 1831, another 40 black families bought land in Oro at a special price. After 1825, the area was opened up to loyalists and military men, and in 1831, it was opened to what they call indigents, poor people, and a hundred or so white families settled. Stop fidgeting, I'm almost done. Between 1831 and 1871, the black population remained steady, but by 1900, they were all gone, and nobody knows why they left. Exactly. How'd you find all this out in such a short time? Elementary, my dear Watson. I get books. I read. She tapped a photocopy of a map. This shows shows the survey of the township. The shaded areas are the lots granted to blacks. She picked up her notes and aligned the sheets. I looked at the map. The Penetanguishene Road, now Highway 93, was clearly marked. And so was Wilberforce Street to the east of it named after the Brit whose law emancipated slaves in the British territory. It was the first concession settled by blacks. Hmm. What? Raphael asked. Look, the lots along the Penetanguishene Road are twice as big as the ones on Wilberforce Street. Old Peregrine was sympathetic toward the ex-slaves, but only to a point. Seems he was against slavery, but not for equality. Anyway, now we know why there's an African Methodist church in Oro, I said. Right. Although the first generation or two of African slaves apparently hung on to their old beliefs, eventually they adopted the religion of their masters. Christianity. Yep. Baptist, Methodist, and so on. Mostly Protestant. They had been Christian for at least a generation before they came here. Well, I said, standing and stretching, all this has been very informative, but it doesn't explain the voices. True. So tomorrow, we'll go to the township offices and search the title to the land around the church in Silverwood. We need to find out who used to live there. I had a thought. Hey, wait a minute. 
I'll be right back. I dashed into the workshop and over to the box of books I had temporarily stored, temporarily stored in a corner by the door. I picked up Elizabeth Maitland's diary and took it back to the office. Placing it in the middle of the desk, I explained to Raphaela what it was. Great, she said. The stained and flaky brown leather cover was intact at the front and along the spine, but the back cover had been torn off. The pages were rippled in places, indicating that the diary had gotten wet at some point. It gave off a dry, musty odor. I opened it at random and flipped a couple of pages. The paper had a yellow tinge and the ink was a sepia color. The handwriting was spidery and difficult to read. On some pages, Elizabeth had made line drawings of wildflowers and other plants. Raffaella, to my surprise, recognized all of them. She really knew her stuff, she said. Maybe this thing will tell us something, I suggested. Yeah, it's going to be heavy reading, though. I'll start on it tomorrow. Tonight, I wait in the bush to see what I can see. You mean we wait? I don't want to miss this. Are you sure? The woman doesn't come until midnight. Your mother will kill you. I'll deal with my mother later.